both grandmas had these cellars that were terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you would go down the creaky, steep wooden stairs, you know, to the stone walls. And both of them had shelves in their cellars. And that's where they kept one grandma had pickles and grape juice. My dad used to tell stories of being hunkered down for the tornadoes because that's Tornado Alley in the Midwest. And you would go to the cellar when there were tornadoes and you would eat pickles and grape juice, which together sound absolutely like, you know, kind of a heartburn gut bomb. <laughs> but that's what he would talk about. There's a book sitting on our bookshelf called Nana's Favorites with a very youthful picture of my Nan on the cover and all of her simple yet delicious recipes inside. She used to love being in the kitchen, from my memory anyway. Sometimes I wonder if she would love the dishes or not. <laughs> she would bake cookies for the local Country Women's Association. And I remember having the opportunity to help bag slices and cakes and biscuits to sell at country markets. So while I don't get a lot of time to delve into the baking as much as I'd like to these days, I do see it in my future. Every now and then, when I have the opportunity, I make sure that I can sit down with the kids to pass on some of that knowledge and also grow their confidence muscles in grating carrots and potatoes and pushing down biscuits with a fork before popping them in the oven. My guest today is a very special friend and near and dear to my heart. It's hard to portray the exact power of this conversation without knowing all of the story. What I would like you to take away though is the power in touching on memories and stories that you don't necessarily always get a chance to. I'm Linda Bonney, and this is Stories with a Sunday Roast. Melissa, welcome to the community. Thank you so much for joining us. I know you was many things, but part of that is an executive chef. So tell me how you ended up in that role and what that means in this stage of your life. Yeah, I will. Because in the stage of my life now, I consider myself retired from being a chef. But as my husband always reminds me, once a chef, always a chef. Um, Mm -hmm. That must mean there's still a lot of chefiness in me. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yep. That my journey to become a chef, and it's such a huge part of who I am, and yeah. I appreciate the chance to talk about it because I don't so often anymore, and it goes back to my love of food, but really, it's more than that, because which is why it ties so nicely into the, these stories that you're telling me, because for me, I learned to cook in both of my grandma's kitchens. Mm-hmm. I literally learned to cook at their apron strings on one of those metal old-fashioned stools. I don't know if you guys have them, but back in the day, they were these stools that the bottom would fold out and you could actually kind of sit on it or you could fold it down and it was a stool or you could fold yep. it the other way and it was like a chair. 
Yeah, and I yeah, would climb, and yeah, like steps, sort of thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And they've now, since you know, like everything, reproduced them to look replicate like those stools used to. But that was what I grew up standing on with both of my grandmas, eager to learn, be a part of it, and just cook from a very early age. My grandpa Batorf would say that I was cooking full meals um, by the time I was nine later in life. And wow. I thought, wow. <laughs> I'm thinking, is that really true? I, but then I look back at some of the photos and think, yeah, now they might not have been the best meals on the planet, but I was, you know, I was cooking. And as the years went on and I neared that point in life where you have to pick a path after high school of, you know, what am I going to go to college? What am I going to do? I wanted to become a chef and my parents were from the food service industry. They had both worked in it and were working in it. And, and, and there was a very good apprenticeship program that I had gone in and enrolled in. And my mother was so quote unquote scared for her child to go into the food service industry mm-hmm. that she actually set up what later I kind of found out was a covert plan all along, but had me meet with her the sous chef at the place that she was managing and she was in the front of the house and that, that breakfast with Jesse, which I I still know him to this day, but that breakfast with him changed briefly the course of where I was headed because his task unbeknownst to me was to let me know that if I wanted to work nonstop 80 hour weeks, not have a family, not have a relationship. <laughs> so just you see where this, it was like a, you know, a shakedown that sure, go ahead and choose this path. <laughs> but it's still yeah. fear. It's still fear and, into you. <laughs> right. And so even though I was nowhere near at that point, I thought wanting to start a family or things, I did know that was something I wanted to do. And so I kind of like turned tail and ran and went, okay, next plan. And off I went to college for three and a half years to study journalism. Um, oh. I was a journal, I was a journalism oh. major and was gonna, I did not and, know and, that. <laughs> <laughs> and that's where GR and I started. My husband and I met just before I went to college and we went away to the same college together. And I spent almost four and a half years up there with him and we worked in rest. I worked in restaurants the entire time to pay my bills. And I remember, (laughs) (laughs) and that's where he was working too. And we both worked our way into management. And I remember at some point thinking, I don't want any part of this journalism stuff and (laughs) walked away before the degree. Don't, don't ever take your kids and try to tell them their dreams aren't their dreams because they'll figure out how to do it anyway. Yep. You betcha. (laughs) And that's what I did. So, Mm. you know, I was working in food service and it started me in the front of the house management just because of the way things had fallen. But by the time I had little kids and was living in a smaller town, I was doing things like I had a cake business on the side. I was doing custom children's cakes. I started a small catering company. So I started that way. I'm a self-taught school of hard knocks chef, which it is still one of those professions where you can come up through the ranks and learn from all the the people around you and the experiences that life hands you in a kitchen. And years later, I found myself in the position of finally being a chef at different levels in smaller bistros and 
artisan eateries and then working in big convention settings under chefs and just doing a little bit of all of these different things for a number of years. And then I was able to eventually become an executive chef with BNSF Railway, which here in the United States, that's one of the major railroads that cross the country. One of the wow. things that built this country is the railroad. And mm. so that was an interesting way to land as a chef, Linda, because it took me away from, it took, there I was years later away from my family. They were teenagers by that point. So I didn't have little kids. I had teenagers and it felt like a time that I could actually do something like that because I was able to be away for weeks at a time with the support of a partner at home, but I was also able to be at home solidly for weeks at a time. So it was mm. that kind of a, mm -hmm. of a job where when I was gone, I was completely gone. But when I was home, I was a hundred percent home for sometimes weeks and weeks without having to go to, you know, it was like, you're trying to make up for lost time. Yeah. Were you actually on the rail sort of like, I'm just trying to picture in my head, I almost see you on the train, you know, yep. <laughs> with this managing the skillets and the, like all the other things. What was so? Yeah, it was it was such a unique unique experience. Period. But as a chef, I don't think there could have been a more diverse position that I could have thought of. So what it is is here in the United States with. The railroad and I had no idea it existed. I remember the girlfriend who was in food service. I was in a chef position and she was my food service purveyor. So who I ordered food from and she's the one who told me about the job. And I remember looking at her saying the railroad, what? Like in my mind, I envisioned myself in some <laughs> little commuter train in a little kitchen serving, you know, little microwave meals out of a window or something. And I thought yeah. to myself, I thought to myself, Nola, what in the heck are you recommending me to? Like, I'm not going to go be some sort of <laughs> train cook. And she said, no, no, no. And so what it, What the railroad, all of the major railroads in the United States, which is just a handful of them, have these fleets of cars that they call business cars or executive cars. And they are meant for the use of the railroad only. So it's an internal thing. I used to tell people lots of companies have resorts or timeshares that they use to do marketing events or government affairs events or wine and dine mm. customers right. on the railroad that just happened to be a vintage fleet of rail cars. And with BNSF, it was 34 vintage rail cars. Each rail car had been done to the nines with the, the, the insides being redone and we're all different. There were sleeper cars in the fleet. There were full on big diner cars. There were combination wow. cars, bar cars, and they would be configured in a way that worked for the actual event. So every event was different, but they were all internal with the railroad. So it was either being done for government affairs in a certain area. It was being done for executive trips where they were, the executives of the railroad would go on business trips for two or three days at a time and check out different parts of the rail. And so they even had this car that had an entirely glass back end and they would sit for the day. But during that trip, they were sleeping on board, they were eating on board, and they're the executives of one of the largest companies in our country. So they're not going to be doing it not in style. So it was like interesting that I was there. Mm -hmm, exactly. It mm -hmm. was, and so, I mean, 
if you look at who owns the railroad, it's Warren Buffett. And um, Bill Gates is also part of wow. the Berkshire Hathaway team. You don't have small people on board. You're doing high end, you know, we would every year spend a week at the Super Bowl or a week at the DNC and RNC, which are part of our political campaigns in this country. And we would have events. I told, you know, people say, how many people do you serve off of a train car? And I'd say anywhere from two to 2000. So, you know, 2000 might be if we had a (laughs) um, stationary event where it would be staged outside, we would have private events for government officials. We would do all sorts of things. Our high-end rail cars sat 48 people in the dining room. And so out of these little kitchens that are, uh, I say little, cause by most of our standards and they are small cause it's a train car. You can only yeah. yep. be so wide. You can only be so long. And the two big kitchens, we could serve 48 in the diner, but they were five course meals. Um, it was you know, chef driven cuisine when we had our guests on board, but I was also ultimately responsible for feeding the crew. So Mm. when we were out there, Linda, we lived on those trains and the trains in our country, probably much unlike, do you guys have trains in Tasmania? Not in Tasmania at all. Yeah, I didn't figure because it's too small, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but the trains in this country still see the unspoiled countryside where there isn't now, they oftentimes run alongside of roads, but then oftentimes they don't. And so we would be rolling through parts of the country that you would never see otherwise. And there's a nostalgia to the -hmm. train in general, but to have to source the food, you know, we would stock the train before we left. But if I was going to be out on that consist for weeks, we had a, a crew sleeper car that we would be in. And then of course, kitchens that were signed for different reasons, but you know, we might be out with five cars and we might be out with 12 or 15 cars. We were never out with all 34 at a time. And there could be more than one train out in the system at a time. So we did a decent amount of flying as well, but we rode the train to and from an awful lot. And so to live on that train 24 seven was such a unique experience, but then I'm always planning ahead. I had to plan for the entire crew meals as well as all of the guest events. And you have this small train cars that you're stocking everything in, which means there also had to be a plan to locally source all the way across the country. Yeah. Wow. And it was such a unique situation. And just the heightened, heightened everything really, because you would be under quite an amount of pressure, I would say, in a chef role anyway, but then to add that extra dimension and dynamic of being quite isolated in this vast, amazing, beautiful, in just surrounded by this intrigue, while I guess in some ways it's almost a little bit of a novelty, novelty I don't know that novelty is exactly the right word, but you're also serving high profile like guests at the same time so there's a lot to soak in there <laughs> how do you there is and yet it, and yet oh. it all centered around food right um yeah and, and the interesting yep. part of that is for me maybe that's why that particular position fed my soul in so many ways because not only did I get a do what I loved, which is make really nice high-end food. But ultimately most chefs love to do what they do because they want to 
take care of people. They want to mm, bring them satisfying. together. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I still to this day find nothing more powerful than putting people around a table together and yeah. letting them just have conversation. And at the heart of things, not only was I getting to do that as a host, as a, as someone who was putting the event on and ultimately cooking for them, but then I got to do the same thing to put all of the crew together every single day for family style meals and sit down with those people who were also all away from their families and form some sort of a ragtag, you know, on the road, cohesive <laughs> family <laughs> with a bunch of people that in some ways couldn't be more different. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of magic in it. There was also a lot of strife at times. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. As you can imagine, you had to deal with all of the things. And most of the time, <laughs> it just seems that there's a food in front of you and you're eating a meal when a lot of this stuff, when the gold happens. So, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And it's interesting because we throughout this podcast and book and conversation, there has been a little bit of that talk of, I guess, isolated conditions where you are with people and you have basically <laughs> to get along in a way that works in a cohesive sort of fashion, like my dad talking about going down to Antarctica for almost 18 months and the isolation of that and working in close proximity, you work and you sleep and you eat and <laughs> all the things. Oh, yeah, and, like, that's like the train. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, same with the military conversation I recently mm. had as well. So there's oh, there's such a, yeah, unveiling in a way, but also just it Absolutely. builds character. Mm. And so much of what I saw in how people could be cared for or soothed or even at times triggered, honestly, still centered around the food because... Mm -hmm. If you're out there with people for weeks and you're the one in charge of everything from ordering the food to making sure that, you know, as the executive chef, we were ultimately in, in charge of the entire train crew with the exception yep. of the, the men that were driving the train. They were completely separate from us, yep. but I had to make sure that everybody had everything they needed. But at the end of the day, the things that brought them the most comfort was taking the time to make sure I got certain snacks or mm -hmm. um, knowing that someone was having a hard time making their favorite meal for family dinner or different things like that. Still, it always, for me, it's funny how much of it comes back to the food. And so then I get into this tug pull relationship with myself of, is it really the food? And it's, it's not, it brings you back. It brings me back to this whole stories with a Sunday roast Linda, yep. because mm -hmm. is it the roast or is it the relationships, right? And can they exist exclusively or are they magically intertwined somehow? And it's just such an interesting love affair and that we have with meals and food and our memories are tied to them. And it's, it's just, um, it's just it so fascinating. Be, it could be that there's quite a different experience of that depending on things like your experiences to start and also just the type of 
attractions that you are drawn towards because as we've discussed previously, some people do remember places and faces and other people will remember the location they're in. Other people might remember the conversations they had or the pictures or the car that they were driving, the shirt that they were wearing. Or <laughs> There's so right. many different ways that we do recall those memories and I don't think there's necessarily a right or wrong answer in all of this. For me, I definitely do think the two are intertwined. That's a no-brainer for me. <laughs> mm. <laughs> that In saying that, I really don't think that that is the answer. That's just my right. strong opinion slash belief slash experience slash understanding and a big driver for this project as well. Yeah. Mm. What sort of meals were you cooking at that high end? Do you remember any favourites? <laughs> So the the joy of that position was that there was well there was a lot of there was a lot of joys to that position but being able to create menus unique to every situation was just such yeah. a growing experience for me as a chef because it wasn't like I was pigeonholed into a restaurant and a set menu. Yep. And there's beauty in that in itself, right? The repetitiveness, the perfecting of it and things like that, but when you get to be creative and base it on your location a lot there's a whole different mm. level of magic so there's a lot of meals that I did that were probably never recreated meaning I just so kind of did something once but the things that seemed to come back a lot were believe it or not some of the standards favorites that people would ask for at home and I'm just going to say it like pot roast you know if I had yeah. the executives on board they would for a three-day business meeting they actually didn't want to be served you know filet mignon and you know caviar hassleback and- <laughs> potatoes and ca- yeah they didn't they didn't mm-hmm. they actually wanted more comfort food and you know they wanted to and so those are the types of things that I would make for them a lot but when I had guests um there really wasn't a favor. I tend to, people would say, what style of chef are you? This might help a little bit. I tend to lean Mediterranean. Yep. So I like a lot of fresh fish. I like a lot of vegetables and grains and just kind of what you would think of if you think of Spain or Italy or Greece. I tend to mm. default there a little bit for my style of cooking And so there would be a lot of fresh fish and light, fresh, herby sauces and uh, roasted vegetables because that brings out the flavor. You know, I am really good at paying homage to the food itself and not, so a lot of it came down to the local sourcing of good ingredients, which we have a lot of that around this country and just people don't take advantage of it as much as they should. So um, seafood was requested an awful lot, but we also spent a lot of time in the Pacific Northwest on the train. So there's a lot of seafood up there, a lot of salmon and things like that. Yeah. Did your grandparents do a lot of that Mediterranean style cooking growing up? (laughs) So let's circle back to that kitchen stool for a second. What sort of, memories and experiences and mm, smells and colors and sounds and 
all those feelings, what what can you remember from those kitchen days? Like like everything, like in Technicolor. Uh, um, yeah, and yep. Smell-O-Vision. Technicolor yeah. and Smell-O-Vision comes back. <laughs> But so I'll visit the farm first. My dad's folks were from the farm and they lived only about 10 minutes apart. Both my parents, my parents left and my parents met in high school. So my grandparents lived very close together and my, I had city, I had, I had city, not city, just to be clear, town, little tiny town grandparents and then (laughs) farm grandparents. So I I had the, the city mouse, country mouse thing going on there. And my dad's folks were from Midwestern rural um, country. He used to say they were dirt farmers. That's not really a thing, but just the idea that they were, they had nothing growing up and the farm provided Mm. everything. And so growing Mm. up in that grandma's kitchen, I remember, you know, all the meat that grandma took out of the freezer was wrapped in butcher paper because all of the meat came from the farm. So it really came from the butcher. It didn't come from the supermarket. There were no styrofoam trays, with the you know plastic over them, it was unwrapping that fresh meat from her cattle, yeah. and so you know, believe it or not, at her house, as you can imagine, it was a very traditional farm. There was almost always meat and potatoes. We mm-hmm. almost always started mm-hmm. with what Grandma would, what she would call a salad, which was just basically lettuce with some you know carrot coins and tomatoes yep. and. <laughs> The bright cheese and the, they always had the French red dressing and kind of the traditional stuff. But man, when she would cook roast, honestly, um, that's where my dad got his pressure cooker that I later inherited. And so I, I still can smell everything that she put in that pressure cooker. I can hear the of the little weight on top of the pressure cooker. And that's a part of those same memories of smelling that meat and potatoes and gravy permeating the air and hearing that little and, you know, we were always slicing up fresh vegetables and doing everything from scratch there. She would, I still see that's why as a grandma, I do some of the things I do, but we would get up in the morning and she basically was our short order chef. And I never thought twice about it as a kid. Of course, we could just tell grandma one of us wanted eggs and toast. The other one wanted French toast. That was my favorite. And, and the other would, one wanted pancakes. And she would just yeah. do any of it. And that seemed and, like such a wonderful thing to not just be told, yeah, you're getting just this. You know, just everybody's mm-hmm. having cereal to be able to say, what do you want? Yeah. And that was so lovely. And then at my other grandma's. Both grandmas had these cellars that were terrifying. (laughs) (laughs) You would go down the creaky, steep wooden stairs, you know, to the stone walls. And both of them had shelves in their cellars. And that's where they kept one grandma had pickles and grape juice. My dad used to tell stories of being hunkered down for the tornadoes because that's Tornado Alley in the Midwest. And you would go to the cellar when there were tornadoes and... You would eat pickles and grape juice, which together sound absolutely like, you know, kind of a heartburn gut bomb, (laughs) but that's what he would talk about. And we had occasion once or twice to be in the cellar for tornado or, you know, warnings. And sure enough, that's what was down there. Grape juice and pickles. And (laughs) you would find yourself cracking open a jar of each. And somehow it was just 
like time froze when you were down there in the cellar. My other grandma canned more than pickles and grape juice. She did jellies. That grandma came from the Pacific Northeast in this country, which is Maine, very far north and across from like England. And she consequently didn't like seafood, which worked out well because my grandpa landed her in the Midwest of cow country. And mm -hmm. she did like um, ground beef, but man, that's the grandma that taught me all the weird stuff. She taught me to eat cucumbers <laughs> with vinegar and mustard on potato chips. And, oh. but that's, I still recreate her cheese ball. It's like a family thing that now the granddaughters have to learn the cheese ball. Uh, I can see and smell her pies. She made the best chocolate oh. pie, which <laughs> homemade chocolate pie, you know, it's just, um, it seems so like nobody should want it and it's just so good and yep. mm -hmm. yeah and she could just whip things together both of these grandmas had at different times worked at like this one local institution restaurant and so they both had some food service experience and we i just that's where we spent wow. all of our time was cooking and mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. was it all of the family that would gather in the kitchen to cook as well because i know for me, sometimes, I don't know if it was more of a convenience, but it might be that we'd sort of have one of us in the kitchen at a time, I think. It wouldn't be sort of my sister and I in there together because I think it got a little bit too wild and <laughs> wanted to be out in the garden with my grandpa you know, picking strawberries or something and then the other one might be up at the kitchen bench helping make scones or something like that. But yeah, I don't know if that's actually the way that it played out or just my memory of it, maybe. If you asked your sister, it might be a different memory. That's the interesting yeah. part of some of this. Yeah. And I remember there was always, in my mom's parents in town, there was always a ton of us in and out and around the kitchen. They had this big she had kind of a peninsula and a bar pass through the whole entire kitchen. There were cabinets above, but it was a pass through on the bottom. And so there was always the stools on the other side of the pass through were lined with somebody was always sitting at every stool. And mm -hmm. we were all just working on things together in that kitchen. In my other grandma's kitchen on the farm, it was much more grandma in the kitchen. It was a much more farmhouse. You know, the kitchen was separate from a lot of the sitting areas and things. Yeah. And so there wasn't a bunch of, I, you know, one of it, like you, I kind of remember maybe being allowed to be in there with my grandma, but I don't remember a bunch of us in there. Mm -hmm. I remember more people coming in when it was time to put things on the table. But at that yeah, house, yep, yep. there you more set the table and people sat down and grandpa took off his hat from being out at the, out in the pasture. And it was more <laughs> traditional. So, so you would set the, and take the food out. The other grandparents, um, my grandma was very eclectic and quirky and while there was a big table there there was also the counter and lots of people stood and ate and it was much more communal and a little bit warmer <laughs> yeah yep. um the there was a little more frivolity and fun going on at that grandma's house as far as the the level of relaxation and people being a little bit more relaxed and the garden was such a big part of that house. And that was the end of, even though there wasn't the farm, my grandma had a huge garden. They lived on an acre in town 
And so they had this huge corner lot and an antique store on one side of their garage and this giant garden out back. And I just remember in both grandma's houses going up and down these rows full of vegetables. And I, I could yeah. just go out there and, yeah. you know, hide among the green beans and, <laughs> you know, look at all of those mm-hmm. red tomatoes. And it just, it's, Iowa spoiled me for food in other parts of the country because I grew up knowing real tomatoes off the vine and real, yeah. all the real food that then once you start getting it in supermarkets, it's not like the same as it tastes like no. a tomato. Mm-mm. Yeah. <laughs> not at all. And yeah, I remember my pa used to grumble under his breath that the magpies had been into the strawberries again and rah, 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 probably knowing full well that it had actually been our little fingers and hands that had crawled under that net and <laughs> and that sort of thing. So it was just such a treat to experience that and I think even coming back to when you were talking about the sound of the boiler and the pressure cooker and that sort of thing there's almost an anticipation then that comes along with meals and food and there's a journey that you take rather than just being able to sit down and there it is you witness so much of that build up in a way that you then appreciate it so much more when you do get to sit down and just I I think of grandma my other grandma on the farm and she always made homemade egg noodles and of course that was just what she knew it was easy to throw and so the whole there were two deep freezers on her screened in porch and she would line the tops of those with newspaper and there would just be noodles spread out all over those newsprint. And I, that was just how I grew up. So I didn't think twice about it until I was a young teenager. We moved away from Iowa and lived down farther in Kansas city. And so I didn't go to my grandparents as often. And that was not how my parents cooked. (laughs) My dad knew how to cook a little bit more that way. And my dad and I would still cook together, but my mother was not a cook like at, at all. And so everything came from like the seventies and eighties taught us from packages and boxes. And we really saw the demise of the farmer and food start in the eighties, I think. And so that's, you know, I I kind of feel like becoming a chef brought me full circle back to where things started for me, which was part of the gift of being able to do that. Tell me as far as, also providing for your family as well because I am at a stage in my life I will put my hand up and admit it fully that cooking often feels like a really big bloody chore (laughs) and the whole uh, that time of day where people are hungry and often quite overwhelmed or tired or needing many many things at once And so that time of day of preparing dinner, sitting down for dinner and then dishes after dinner feels like it takes a lot out of my bandwidth slash energy slash patience. (laughs) Did you experience that within your home with young children or at different stages where you might be cooking for work or or that sort of thing, and by the time you get home, you just, oh, oh, no. (laughs) Tell me how that looks. 
Yeah, um, absolutely. Mm-hmm. It, the funny part is, is when you're a chef, and especially when you're a chef doing, you know, high-end type stuff, the assumption is that's how you feed your family, that everybody, because people would automatically say to my husband or my kids, oh my gosh, you guys must eat so yeah. well. <laughs> and I would laugh under my breath and think, you know, if, if they think my kids don't like craft macaroni and cheese the same as the rest of the world, they're yeah. wrong. <laughs> um, and so for when I was working very full time and very busy, and especially in that job, there were times a year that we were much busier than others. So of it course. was a real ebb and flow of that job. There were months in certain part of the year that you know, we were home a lot more. And then there were times that we were kind of gone a little bit more. But when, when we were in a really busy season and I was gone a lot and I was working, you know, long hours when I would come home, the last thing I wanted to do was cook Linda. Um, Mm -hmm. but I will tell you that it, to say that it didn't make doing the task of cooking easier, of course it did. And even though I joke and say, I fed my kids craft macaroni and cheese at home, it's still (laughs) somewhat of a, somewhat of a fib. I did, but yep. to think that they also didn't grow up eating really good homemade macaroni and cheese and that the tomato yeah. soup and chicken yeah, yeah. fingers weren't homemade. They were. And they did learn to cook from a very early age and are all good cooks to this day. And so even though we did eat what I call normal food, there was meatloaf and mashed potatoes and it wasn't just high end food with fancy sauces and all the but they knew what that looked like because if we would entertain or have holiday, that nicer stuff came out. But the only thing I'll tell you is that it did make it a little bit less hard because it was kind of second nature to throw the food together. So mm. it just meant that it was no less of a mental chore for me than than a lot of moms because there's just so much to running a home. And oh, it's not just yeah. the cooking itself. Absolutely. I actually... I actually quite enjoy the cooking process because like you, I've grown up doing it alongside my grandparents and I've got a book on the bookshelf which is basically titled Nana's Favourites and it's got a picture of my nan when she was probably late 20s, early 30s and, yeah, that's definitely, it's got really, really simple recipes of hardly any instructions and, you know, yeah, all that sort of thing. So, oh, it's... Yeah, I have a pile of treasured recipes that mm. um, I have a goal of doing something with. And when my husband and I first um, sold our home and went on the road a handful of years ago and traveled in a motorhome for a couple of years, at that time I was going to use all of this background as a chef and I was writing a cookbook and I was teaching people to cook in small kitchens. And I had a blog and was doing all these things because in my mind, I was going to do what I knew, which Mm. was, and so that cookbook project got put on hold, but I say put on, at one point I thought I walked away from it. Now I realize I've just put it on hold and that's what I want it to be. I want my first cookbook that I ever put out. And I say first, I don't know if there'll ever be another one. I do know I have a lot of books in me. I just don't know if they're all cookbooks. <laughs> um, but the cookbook I want to put into the world is actually my heritage cookbook. I, I'm not going to call it that. But it truly, you know, my, my brand back then when I was writing the cookbook was Cultivated Journey. And yeah. it really feels like that's what the cookbook is still going to be is something around the cultivated journey that I've lived in my life. And 
I can put in the recipes that mix these generations, the things from my grandparents, the things from GR's family, that I now mm. have a stack of recipes that were his mom's that he kept. He doesn't have any parents living or grandparents living. Um, and so I want to be able to put all of those recipes, including the ones that have become family staples of mine that did not come from because of being a chef. I have some of my own that didn't belong to either of my families. They really are my families. And so it just feels like that has to be put somewhere and leaning kind of into what you're doing. I told my husband, it won't just be a recipe cookbook. It's going to be stories and recipes because how else do you do awesome. your yeah. heritage without doing both? Yeah. You've said it out loud on a podcast now as well. So oh, <laughs> watch no. out. <laughs> oh no. I know we, we dream things into fruition. That's actually why that website's still live is because uh, a princess that we know won't let me deactivate it until we have a chance to, do the book project at some point so <laughs> yes watch uh, out <laughs> yes <laughs> uh, wonderful so I know it's probably hard to think about some of your favorite Sunday roast memories or anything that sticks out because there sounds like there are so many but if you were to hmm, cast back to one of the favorite Sunday roasts. Do you have any that stick out for you? Yeah, it's almost exactly the same for both families. So I don't know if it was just where we were from, mm -hmm. but to this day, it's mm -hmm. the roast that when I create Sunday roast, I recreate. And for us, it is beef and yeah. it's the big roast in there with the golden potatoes and bright orange carrots and yeah mm -hmm. uh -huh, and onion there's always a lot of onion in ours and for me when you when you have roast you have to have the big piece of roast and then you have to have the carrots and potatoes and they're done to a point that you can mash them together and yep. then you pour that jus over all of it oh, oh, just oh. haven't and here here's here's a chef's secret that i i shouldn't say out loud it's not a secret it's horrible to this day, I, I sometimes will like a little dab of tomato ketchup on the side because I think as a kid, that's how my parents got me to eat roast. And it's atrocious. <laughs> like it's not something that a chef, but see, every chef has these things in their, in their life that they would say, oh, I, I eat this from my childhood. And you would go, what? Yep. Mm -hmm. So the fact that now I don't pour it over my roast, like I might've done, you know, squeeze it on there. Like I might've when I was a kid. But I do usually sometimes have a little tomato ketchup by to the side or something that I might just, you know, dip my roast in there once. And my husband will always look at me like, oh, the chef did not just do that. And I'm like, the chef did not. I did. <laughs> Melissa did. <laughs> uh, so for me, the, but to, for me, that little uh, part of that is part of that memory of remembering the exact tastes and smells because there's something about, you know, I told my husband, I said, at the end of the day, if you just dumb that down and call it tomato sauce of some sort, it's just about wanting that, you know, sweet yeah. tomatoey flavor. And I can smell that along with the roast and the potatoes and carrots, which tells me that is how I was eating it as a child. I was, you know, yeah. parents 
use sauces to get their kids to eat a lot of things, whether it's cheese or ranch dressing or fill in the blank. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you should see how many veggies I chuck in the spaghetti bolognese. It's <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, I used to do carrots and carrots because you could get away with carrots in a lot. Yeah. Um, I would put shredded carrots and usually zucchini in my meatloaf because mm -hmm. my kids didn't know. Mm -hmm. I don't do it anymore. But <laughs> yeah, I was hiding, hiding the vegetables a lot when they were um, younger until they just got used to them being there and ate them. All of my kids love vegetables. But that is mm -hmm. when you're raised by a chef, you tend to get more of that stuff probably shoved at you than you would sometimes otherwise. My, you know. My mom yeah. wasn't sitting down with full meals in front of us. So my dad put them in front of us and then I learned to. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, I just, and you know, both grandmas always had the big basket of like those soft rolls that somehow they seamlessly would just whip together in a second and throw in the oven, you know, like fresh, mm -hmm. fresh rolls. And yep. to this day, bread is one of the things that I would <sighs> never claim to be an expert at doing. I admire bread artisans so much because being a bread baker is a craft all to itself. Anybody that it thinks is. otherwise doesn't know. And that's not something that I'm good at just whipping up a quick bread. And I look back at just smelling the bread and the real butter from the farm. Mm -hmm. And I grew up in a household in the eighties where margarine was supposed to be better for you. It wasn't, um, <laughs> the things that they tried to tout were better for us were actually worse. Um, you know, wonder bread. Oh my gosh. <laughs> you know, right. <laughs> and, but so I think back to the butter and the rolls and I eventually let myself get, you know, when I became obviously long before I became a chef at appreciating those, but my mother touted that stuff as farm food and that farm food made people fat. That was her take on things. And so, yeah, oh, you gosh. talk about the positive and the negative that can come from food. I had a love hate affair with food for many years until I just embraced where I came from and yeah. real food and the smells of real food, because that's yeah. what all of this is. The smells of the fresh vegetables and the, yeah. the bread, especially in the bread and the butter the bread, that was yeah. melting on mm -hmm. it. And then you mm -hmm. knew there was pie sitting on the counter. Right. I mean, yeah. yeah. So my man used to make amazing bread and, yeah, she used to make handmade, homemade ice cream. Oh, just you think about it now and I also look at my calendar and my days and I think, oh, my gosh, how on earth? <laughs> like, yes, maybe when I retire or something like that. But at the moment it's just not practical at all, um, unfortunately, as much as I love love the concept and idea of doing these things from scratch um, yeah <laughs> if only you had the time right you look back and mm -hmm. think but they weren't doing all of the other things we're doing right it's just a no, different I, lifestyle but i look back and yeah. think they were doing the laundry by hand you know yep um mm -hmm. while listening to the wireless <laughs> yeah exactly yeah, yeah. Oh, I love this conversation so much. I feel like we could keep going and going. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, and many of these conversations I've joked and said, oh, there's going to need to be a sequel or a, you know, follow-up chapter. <laughs> Part so, two. Yeah. Mm, keep, that, keep that one up, up our sleeves for now. But thank you so much for joining me. This is such a delight and I've learnt 
many, many things and gone back in time and back and forward and roundabout. And yeah, I just really, really appreciate you. Likewise, I appreciate you. And it's been an absolute gift to be able to come on and, and revisit this and talk about all the food and the, the chefing. <laughs> mm, definitely. Hmm. I cannot tell you how much this conversation means to me. To be able to provide a space to talk about those memories and lead our imagination into places where we don't normally dare to go. <laughs> that in itself is amazing. Pair that with being able to talk to such great friends and be in such inspirational company oh my life feels very very fulfilling right now i really do hope that much of those feelings and much of the importance of these conversations really does shine through and reach your ears as well as mine another inspirational conversation was one that I actually had with my dad. So Robert Bonney is here now just to give you a little taster of what's to come. The bunk beds got made when we were living at Lena Valley and I built those in the lounge room. <laughs> so I didn't have a workshop at that stage. <laughs> no surprise. I remember many Christmas Eves where we'd hear the bang and <laughs> yeah, saw at 10pm yeah. or 11pm yeah. woken up by Santa and yeah. still trying to get this jolly project finished. And yeah, oh yeah, all that sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. To hear more about current projects and the book, please head over to lindabonnie.com. I gladly welcome you into the community. Thank you so much for being here.